0: Uh, good evening, friends in Dhamma. I've been really enjoying um, the simplicity of Greg's observation that there are really only two problems in our practice, <laughs> the body and the mind. <laughs> and we've been practicing the last few days uh, particularly with the body, using the body, breath, and sounds as kind of orienting for our awareness, orienting for our practice. And then Jeannie last night gave her beautiful talk on the hindrances, um, these sticky and troublesome mind states that uh, keep interfering with this uh, attending to the body, breath, and sounds And I also love that she used the word nivarana, and uh, my mind was playing with the fact that it's almost an anagram of nirvana. So it's really true what she was pointing to, that uh, simply becoming aware of these difficult mind states is a a portal or a gateway into, into some real possibility of freedom. So Tonight, I want to speak about uh, a related, recurrent, troubling feature of experience, which is namely my thinking or thinking. And the reason that I chose to do this now is because at this point in the retreat is because I have the sense in my own practice, both past and also still today, that I'm really aware of... uh, how much time I, I feel I waste, lost in the, in the realm of thinking. And so to really direct some attention to this. And thinking, of course, is, is a really uh, amazing and uh, wonderful capacity that human beings have. Um, one of the writers I've been enjoying reading recently is uh, the Israeli historian Yuval Harari who wrote these books Sapiens and other books and uh, he talks about how according to evolutionary theory it was about 70,000 years ago that human beings developed a capacity to think and talk about subjects that weren't there to um, construct abstract ideas in an imaginative world and what that did was give them the ability to co- communi- communicate and cooperate in vast numbers and so this has given us tremendous um, benefits and advantages as a species and actually if it weren't for that capacity we wouldn't all be here doing what we're doing and I couldn't you know talk to you and we couldn't be um, sharing these teachings so thought thought is a something that is a blessing and useful and we're using it often in our practice uh, in the recollections uh, that we practice uh, or even simply you know when we choose to uh, direct Direct the mind to the breath by using this concept of breath and the word breath or body. We can point our attention in certain ways. So, thought is is precious and it's useful. But this capacity for abstract thoughts also meant that we we do live and we began those seventy thousand years ago to to live in an increasingly abstract world, in a in a, almost in a sort of virtual world. Um, even before the invention of the technology that we have today. And this is something that the Buddha was really aware of. So many of you will know the opening lines of that beautiful ancient text, the Dhammapada, which says that, and I'm slightly paraphrasing my own translation, mind is the forerunner of all things. They are led by the mind, made by the mind, When we think or act with an afflicted mind, suffering follows us like the wheel follows the hoof of the ox that draws the cart. Mind is the forerunner of all things. They're led by the mind, made by the mind. Think or act with an unafflicted mind and happiness follows you like a shadow that never leaves you. So both our collective world, which is a world of great beauty and also a world of a lot of problems, as we know, and our personal one, are um, formed by our thoughts. And there are so many different worlds within this one room. So again, I I love Greg's suggestion that we might plug in and broadcast all these different thought worlds that are happening in here. It would be very interesting indeed. And, you know, certainly in, in this capacity on this retreat, I, fi- I feel it's a real privilege to um, be invited into some of your thought worlds and, and really a pleasure to meet with you. And it's also really interesting to see how many different, different worlds there are sitting on these Zafus and Zabatons. You know, we're all having our, our different uh, personal experience. And actually our whole sense of individuality is uh, really um, bound up with our thinking because we so tend to identify ourselves with the thinker. It's one of our primary identities. So thinking gives us our, our sense of individuality. And yet where do those thoughts that are the jigsaw pieces of the jigsaw of me come from? And when we really investigate that, we you know we notice that there are things that we've picked up from our families, uh, from our culture. And we start assembling identities and worldviews from infancy. And yes, we perform our own operations on them and we reconstellate them uh, according to our own uh, inclination uh, and our own uh, understandings. But the, the basic pieces, a lot of them are Heavily programmed and heavily conditioned. So we're sort of like fish that are swimming in the ocean of our thoughts and beliefs. And lots of those are below the radar of our conscious experience. So, you know, things for me like you know, what, it, what it means to be a woman. You know. What it means to be a woman of this particular age. And a lot of these identities, even if we don't choose to identify them, they're, they're imposed on us from the outside by convention. Because you know, these are the climate of thoughts and understandings that we're all living in. So we can also see how ideas can create and sustain value systems of oppression and uh, social injustice. Uh, and they, they can actually feed a collective uh, greed and hatred and delusion. And even if we don't intend this, we we're impacted by this, and we we contribute to this in various ways. So again, even when the mind is quiet and like in this, if the mind is in neutral, there's there's biases operating in the way that we see the world. These under the radar habits of thought, and so it's really. Important in our practice to also um, be willing to investigate what's below the surface as well, but the, these these um, systems in the mind are are not all bad they can also create and nurture um, what's really good in in our humanity so these these constructed worlds of thought they can Curate and pass on wisdom from one generation to another, and have uh, myths and structures and practices and teachings um, that enable that. And this tradition in which we're sitting, in which we're swimming here, is is one of those. There are many, many such traditions, and this is this is one in which we're swimming together. So there's this background world of beliefs. And then there's also what comes to mind on any given day or in any given moment. So, for each of us, how many different worlds have we occupied just today, you know, or over the past week, let alone the differences between our worlds? And which one is real? So, I really feel for you. Um, being invited to come to these practice discussions, knowing how when I'm on retreat and I'm anticipating a practice discussion, no matter how hard I try to, you know, just have an empty mind about it, I find myself, while I'm practicing, kind of rehearsing what I'm going to say in my practice discussion. And it's as if that, that piece of the mind just won't go away and be quiet. You know, this is, this is how our minds work. And sometimes we can 't just say well what 's actually what 's actually true here what 's real what 's the important important thing to bring and it 's sometimes really hard hard to discern so just to say that we all we 've all been there we 're all used to being there and understand this and then these days we have things like uh, Facebook and Instagram and snapchat and Sometimes we, we barely have even experienced something before we're sharing it with others. And particularly, I notice as I have teenage nieces who are you know, very much um, bound up in the world of social media and how we're kind of sharing it and curating this self-image all the time. So we're often more involved with the story of our experience than with the experience itself. And even for someone like me who's uh, a bit of a Luddite and not, um, you know, I'm not on Facebook and so on, but even way before these existed, you know, there's a lot of activity in the mind that is kind of fixing and sorting out this story of me that I have to keep kind of checking on and making sense of. And yet it's a, it's a narrative, it's a story that's constantly running away from us, isn't it? You know, When we look at it, it's another of these places where we can discern these three characteristics. It's constantly changing. Uh, it's never satisfactory in that any sense of security that I get from having a certain story of me is so incredibly vulnerable and needs fixing all the time. Yeah. And actually the processes that bring it together are not personal they're not in my control so we we can spend a lot of time worrying about somebody who doesn't really exist in the way that we think they do me and then we do that to one another as well you we spend an awful lot of time worrying or being concerned about or annoyed with other people who also don't really exist in the way that we think they do So how do we relate to this bewildering world of thoughts? One of the things I find really helpful is to make a distinction between thoughts and thinking. So I like to think of thoughts as the impressions that arise uh, at the sense door of the mind, which of course in... in, um, The Dhamma view is the sixth of the sense bases after the conventional five sense bases. So there's a stimulus that arises in the mind, either from a contact at one of the external senses or something from within. And this is happening to us all the time. And moreover, the job of the mind is to scan for threats and opportunities. So it's constantly bounding around um, with its uh, radar out for these different impressions that arise. And Ajahn Chah, who we've mentioned a few times, he said he likened this also to a monkey, which is something that, you know, we've probably all heard this expression, monkey mind. But he said that what, we make the mistake of expecting the monkey, monkeys not to be monkeys. You know, we want this monkey to stop swinging around the branches. And of course monkeys never do that. And so when we try to force that to stop happening, or we want that to stop happening, then we're going to suffer. So thoughts are always you know, landing on the sense door of the mind. That's thoughts. Thinking is when we actually pick them up and start running with them, or we pick up the impressions and we pursue them. Yeah. And uh, we think we're picking it up, but in a way, once we're involved in that, the thoughts pick us up. So it's as if the thoughts start thinking us, and they, get, they become self-perpetuating when mindfulness uh, isn't strong. And so the Buddha described this process a certain way so he says this is one passage in which he describes the process of thinking dependent on the eye and forms or ear and sounds and all the different sense bases eye consciousness arises so the meeting of a sense base and uh, the external stimulus is contact with contact as condition there is feeling What one feels, one perceives. What one perceives, that one thinks about. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. With what one has mentally proliferated as the source, perceptions and notions born of mental proliferation beset a person with respect to past, future, and present. So this is what happens. And there's a a nice word for this in Pali, which is papancha. Uh, This is the process of mental proliferation, when thoughts gather momentum. And it's said that Buddhas, or awakened beings, are beings who delight in nipapancha, or non-proliferation. Christina Feldman says that as Dharma practitioners... Uh, we should be signing a non-proliferation treaty with ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So how do we do that? So it may be that when the mind is really quiet, we can begin to see that process that the Buddha was describing as it's happening. And that touches on lots of things that we will be talking about, I'm sure, over these next few weeks, uh, contact, feeling, perception, and so forth. But right now, today, what I, I want to talk about is the, the times when we don't catch the thinking process until it's already rolling, until it's already gathered momentum. So the first thing we might do is just notice when we're lost in thought. And it's really helpful to spot the typical topics where this happens. So a big clue might be when there's preoccupation with the past or the future. So this is something from, um, this is not something that's only been noticed by a Dharma practitioner. as Here's Blaise Pascal, who was a French mathematician and thinker in the 17th century. He says, "'Let each of us examine our thoughts. We'll find them wholly concerned with the past or the future. We almost never think of the present. And if we do think of it, it's only to see what light it throws on our plans for the future.'" Have you noticed that? (laughs) The present is never our end. The past and present are our means. The future alone our end. Thus we never actually live, but hope to live. And since we're always planning how to be happy, it's inevitable that we should never be so. So we find ourselves planning don't we and that can be you know the distant future or it can be you know when there's less going on on retreat the minutiae of our day on retreat and some of you have been reporting just how um, funny it is and frustrating to find yourself you know engaging in all this planning over really microscopic. Pieces of how you're going to spend your time, or how you're going to make your drink, or uh, so forth. Yeah. and this can be, you know, we can we can have a habit of of worrying, and there may be things in our in in our lives that are are you know understandable sources of worrying, but actually, right here, right now, um, we we're taking a break out from manipulating. Uh, the future of our life and yet this planning mechanism just doesn't switch off so it may be there may be a, a habit of anxiety it may just be that we're bored and it's more fun to plan something than to sit here and watch our breath you know? but we find ourselves doing what Blaise Pascal he says we, we find ourselves thinking how we're going to arrange things over which we have no control for a time we can be nev- never be sure of reaching You know, we don't know what's going to happen next. And we can even start turning our Dhamma insights into planning. So, you know, we have an insight, something works, and we think, yeah, that's the trick. That's what I'm going to apply for my practice for the rest of the retreat, and the retreat, and Eureka, that's going to work. And of course, you know, the next moment is something different, and it doesn't always work like that. But we can turn even that into planning. Or we find ourselves remembering, remembering a lot, maybe trying to relive some pleasant experience or maybe to undo some past unpleasant experience. Or to just, you know, think about ourselves historically, reassuring ourselves that we're okay. And lots of these domains of thinking, when we really look at that, they're about us wanting to reassure ourselves that we're okay. So one big source of suffering on retreat is comparing mind, you know, we look around us and we see all these people kind of walking serenely up and down their walking path and we're thinking this walking meditation just doesn't make sense to me and I feel really annoyed by it and, you know, I want to go for a run and uh, I must be a bad yogi or this person's getting up earlier than me and they're always in the hall before I am or they're Uh, Going to bed later, and all these ways that we can just um, really create create difficulty for ourselves, or judging mind, so judging ourselves or uh, judging one another, and really, you know, both things come back again to this need to um, straighten out the world to to justify ourselves and I think justification in the sense of like the word processing, we're kind of straightening everything out to make sure I'm aligned in a way that's that's safe. So all our minds maybe have um, kind of particular tendencies of repetitive inclinations. So we might be more of a pessimist or an optimist, we might be tend to fall into aversion, we might be more of a fantasizer or a planner or sometimes you know bits of all of them so you can also notice what your what your sort of habitual ones are so how do we how do we practice with these it's like you know the first job is to notice that they're happening and sometimes just labeling it as one of these things can be really really helpful and it's actually been demonstrated that uh, just doing that has a has a physiological impact that it can um, de-escalate the stress uh, responses in the body when we just name and identify something so you might notice okay this is planning this is remembering this is judging this is comparing mind happening also some of our some of our thinking arises some of us are more visual you know so um, you might be seeing a mental movie playing out and then we might just notice oh seeing happening seeing can be internal as well as external and then uh you know thinking v- maybe verbal thinking yes. or and then when the verbal thinking's Happening can be quite interesting to notice whether we're hearing Some some speech internally or whether we're speaking so that hearing or speaking And this this kind of feeds into the second thing so after noticing and maybe naming or labeling What's happening is to just be interested in the process You know to recognize that this is an event in the mind rather than uh, a reality you know, it may have, of course, it has a correspondence to what's out there, but at the end of the day it's our take on what's happening out there. So we can get really interested in, well, what what is a thought? You know, how does it manifest? Is it an image? Is there a, a mood maybe that I can feel in the body? Is there a snippet of conversation happening? And one of the things I like to notice is like, well, who am I speaking to? <laughs> And when I ask myself that question, often also what reveals itself to me is why, you know, why am I having this conversation with this person? And I don't even have to think about it a lot. The moment I've seen who I'm having the conversation with, it becomes kind of clear what's going on, you know, or just feeling, well, what, what is the actual experience of picking up one of these thoughts and thinking it, of picking this up and running with it? You know, how does that feel in the body? So you know what dogs are like when they're asleep and they're having this dream of chasing a rabbit, and they go. (laughs) And this, this kind of, you know, one can feel that physically. Even we can sit there. I'm very good at this. I sit there looking really, you know, peaceful on my, on my cushion. But inside, there's this whole uh, drama happening, and you can feel that on a physiological level. And then seeing what happens to a thought when you bring some mindful attention to it. When you really bring your wholehearted attention to what is this phenomenon of the thought? What happens? And if you really want to listen to what's happening in the moment, you have to shut up and stop speaking. (laughs) So something really beautiful that that I like from Mother Teresa when she was asked about... What she did when she prayed, and uh, let, me, let me get this right—that uh, people said, what, "What do you do? What do you say to God when you pray?" And she said, "I don't say anything. I just listen." And that's, they said, "Wow!" And what does God say to you? She, he doesn't say anything. He just listens. <laughs> <laughs> Mm -hmm. there's immense value in listening and and listening as as the way to um, the way to solve problems but we're so busy talking that we don't take the time to listen so another really uh, important thing to do is to look for the mind state underneath underneath the thinking and Jeannie was talking this about, about this last night, looking for the hidden hindrances. And I, I really love this image of, you know, putting on my backpack and going into bear territory somehow. Uh, you know, when thought is proliferating, there's pretty much always uh, one or more hindrance, op- one or more of the hindrances operating in there. And it's more useful to attend to the hindrance than it is to attend to the content of the thought, however seductive the thought might be. And often what I notice is that the thinking is, is, is the mind's way of trying to escape from an unpleasant experience. And I think I used to think in the early stages of my practice that I could think my way out of suffering but it doesn't really work like that. I used to think that we, when I thought my way to the right idea, it would be like that somehow everything would, everything would fall into place. But there isn't a thought that's going to solve everything. It's not how it works. Right. So looking for, looking for the mind state underneath uh, experience is also the Buddha's first approach. Yeah, because recognizing that you know the thinking that we undertake is karmically impactful, so I want to read a little bit from um, the sutras um, to hear. Sometimes I, I, it's nice to hear the Buddha in his own words, or as close to his own words as as we know. So this is him talking about his practice uh, before uh, his enlightenment, while he was. Uh, working on things in in the way that we are working on things. So he said, Bhikkhus, which means practitioners, before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, it occurred to me, suppose that I divide my thoughts into two classes. Then I set on one side thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty, And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of non-ill will, and thoughts of non-cruelty. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, a thought of sensual desire arose in me. I understood thus. This thought of sensual desire has arisen in me. This leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbāna. When I considered this leads to my own affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to others' affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to the affliction of both both, it subsided in me. And when I considered this obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana, it subsided in me. Whenever a thought of sensual desire arose in me, I abandoned it, removed it, and did away with it. And then he goes on to say the same for thoughts of ill will and cruelty. And then he continues, practitioners. Practitioners, whatever a practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of her mind. If she frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of sensual desire, she's abandoned the thought of renunciation to cultivate the thought of sensual desire, and then her mind inclines to thoughts of sensual desire. If she frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of ill will or cruelty, she has abandoned the thought of non-cruelty to cultivate the thought of cruelty. And then her mind inclines to thoughts of cruelty. And then the Buddha continued to practice. And he says, As I abided thus, diligent, ardent and resolute, a thought of renunciation arose in me. I understood thus. This thought of renunciation has arisen in me. This doesn't lead to my own affliction or to others' affliction or to the affliction of both. It aids wisdom, does not cause difficulties, and leads to nibbana. If I think and ponder upon this thought, even for a night, even for a day, even for a night and day, I see nothing to fear from it. But with excessive thinking and pondering, I might tire my body. And when the body is tired, the mind becomes strained and when the mind is strained it's far from concentration so i steadied my mind internally quieted it and brought it to singleness and concentrated it why is that so that my mind should not be strained and the same for thoughts of ill will and thoughts of thoughts of cruelty thoughts of non-ill will and non-cruelty So this invitation to choose what thoughts to think and when. And I think even at the time of the Buddha, people must have heard that and said, well, how on earth do I do that? You know? Because this teaching is immediately followed by the, uh, another sutta, which uh, goes into how, how do we do this? How do we... Um, how do we exercise some choice over what to think and when? And the name of this, this sutta that follows is uh, the calming of thoughts. Um, and I actually like that, or sometimes it's translated as the removal of thoughts. I like the sense of rather than removing them, which suggests that something that we've got to get rid of you know, is, this, is actually the idea of disentangling or disengaging from them. So I just want to share a bit about what the the Buddha offers as methods for uh, disengaging from uh, unwanted thoughts. So he said there there are five things that you can do. So if while we're practicing, we become aware of a thought of greed or a thought of aversion or a thought of delusion, uh, this might happen. For example, we might um, find that we're doing a habitual rerun of an argument that we've had or one that used to happen to me in my first year as a novice nun on eight precepts was I used to go into fantasies about my dream meal at my favorite restaurant or we might be understandably worrying about the future of a health condition that we you know is currently unknowable for us and over which we have no control so I don't want to suggest that uh, all unwholesome thoughts in this sense are, are morally culpable thoughts in the sense that we might think of it. They're, they're unwholesome because they're, they're thoughts that actually lead us to suffering. Yeah. So the suggestion is if we find ourselves playing one of these thoughts, do th- we re- replace it by attending to something wholesome? So that might be, you know, attending to our meditation object or practicing a thought of metta, of goodwill. And it's not like, you know, if we find ourselves rehearsing a, an angry argument with somebody and it feels like too much of a stretch to just say, OK, I'm going to offer them metta instead, you can offer metta to somebody else, you know, um, or to just start investigating in the way that... I've thought, what, what's happening? What is this thinking that's happening? Or to bring in some form of wise reflection. So one of the things Ajahn Chah used to say in response to thoughts... Is to just recognise that it's not a sure thing. You know? These thoughts are changing. We don't know uh, that it absolutely is true or is so. Or Byron Katie a contemporary teacher who has really skillful ways of working with thoughts one of the questions she asked is who would I be without this thought mm-hmm. so this this method is we can do anything that it takes to just play a different track to play a different story and the Buddha said this is like a carpenter who is using a square peg to knock a round peg out of a hole so we we're finding a way to just substitute a better thought for that one but if the thought persists he said then the next thing that you can do the second thing is to examine the drawbacks of the thought so what's the result of me keeping thinking of this thought you know reflecting on how does this lead to suffering So, for example, you know, we find ourselves in a groove of self-judgment, which is a big habit for lots of us. And just reflecting, this is just reinforcing a habit of self-judgment. Or we find ourselves just having um, very angry um, thoughts towards somebody who's hurt us in the past I find this on retreat often the mind tends to go to this it's almost like it it kind of it it sees that it's on retreat and it it wants to do a kind of spring cleaning of the heart (laughs) and so I've spent a lot of time on on my retreats kind of ruminating over painful past relationship and to just notice that you know if we do this um in an unwise way we're just reinforcing a sense of ill will or hurt towards somebody you know it may be that I'm not ready to forgive this situation yet or that's not an appropriate response but just replaying a track of ill will is actually doing ourselves more harm so you know maybe it's even I can't I can't sort this out now or I only go there Uh, in small doses but you know wasting time being stuck in in ill will um, just gives us more work to do later and the Buddha said if if we find ourselves doing this it's uh, we we should be as uh, vigilant around this as as a as a young person, a vain young person would be if they found that instead of wearing the beautiful necklace that they were wearing, they found that they had the carcass of a snake or a dog hanging around their neck. Yeah. That this is to, to really recognize that this is, this is, un, this is unhelpful, this is harmful. Yeah. And if it still persists, yeah, he suggested just not paying any attention to it. So that like in the way that you'd turn your eyes towards something else, turn your, if you stop, you know, looking at, if I stop looking out at you, then uh, I don't see you anymore. Can we stop looking at the thought? So how would we do that? You know, maybe returning our attention to the body, maybe foregrounding the silence and the space around the chatter that's in the head. Or, as I said, you know, lots of our thoughts are accompanied by visual images. What's it like to look away from the movie screen of that thought? And then the fourth method is to, uh, to still the thought energy. Paying attention to stilling the thought energy. Like a person who realized that they were running and decided, actually, I don't need to be running. Why don't I just walk instead? And... I don't need to be walking, I could sit down. Oh, and actually, I'm sitting, but maybe I could lie down. So to gradually relax the energy of the thought. And how would we do that? So one of the ways I like to explore doing this, for example, is uh, knowing that I don't have to finish my thoughts. That you can stop mid sentence when you find yourself in a conversation. Uh, Or it's like stopping the internal speech is suddenly remembering, oh, I'm practicing noble silence. It's like you wouldn't, if you caught yourself speaking in a moment of mindlessness, speaking to a fellow yogi, you'd suddenly remember, oh, noble silence, and fall quiet again. Uh, Maybe we can do that internally as well. Or, as I said, the sense of we're looking around, we're following a visual image. Do you notice what your eyes do in meditation? And do you notice what your eyes do when you're really lost in a thought drama inside? What's it like to rest the gaze, to settle the gaze, to compose the gaze? So actually, I find exploring all these things can be quite fun, in fact. But sometimes we're not nearly calm enough to do that kind of exploration, you know. So in that case, the Buddha said there's one last resort, which is where you um, press your tongue against the roof of your mouth, clench your teeth together, and you crush your mind with your mind. (laughs) In the way, just like a wrestler, a strong man, would wrestle down a weak man and throw him to the ground, you know. So this is kind of in extreme situations, and we, you know, like the sort of time where you, you you're going to blow up at somebody, and actually you recognise that blowing up is going to do more harm than good. So you restrain yourself, you walk out of the room. You know. Or sometimes I find myself, if I'm really wound up, even, and this happens on retreat as well, that I need to go out and practice stomping meditation. I just you know, walk very fast <laughs> from one place to another and even, even stomp. Um, so I, I had a, the last, uh, I was sitting retreat in, in, um, earlier this year for a month and was kind of doing doing my own thing. I had some, the opportunity to do my own thing within this retreat, but I, there were particular Dharma talks that I was really, really keen to hear. And there was a day when I, I was feeling so blissed out in the morning. I thought, you know, this is, really, this is really going well, actually. Whatever happens in the next moment, I don't mind. Anything could happen in the next moment. I'm just so present. I'm flowing from one moment to another. And it really felt like that. I really believed that. <laughs> and then... <laughs> And then later in the evening, I realized, I was just sort of just after the time the Dharma had talk had started, and I realized I'd messed up about which talk was being given which evening. And I'd missed, I was missing this Dharma talk that I'd been kind of looking forward to all day. And oh, so I really don't mind what happens in the next moment. And I had such an internal tantrum. And, and then, of course, I was really uh, upset with myself that I was making such a big deal of it. And at that kind of time, the only thing to do was to stomp up and down the hill a few times, and then that that helped, you know. So these things happen to us. It's okay. So the the Buddha in the the piece that I was reading, he ha- has a couple of similes. He says, you know, when we look after these two kinds of thoughts, the thoughts that are really really harmful and non beneficial, we need to be like a cowherd who's looking after cows who are near a field of ripe, ripe crops and the cowherd's going to get into big trouble if he lets the cows wander onto the crops and tramples the crops and in those situations the cowherd needs to be really vigilant and have a big stick that he can kind of prod and poke and even wallop the cows with to uh, get them to do what they to go where they need to go and then when the thoughts are not harmful thoughts, they're just these thoughts that can run away with us and tire us out, then we can be like a cow herd when the crops have all been safely harvested and gathered in and you're looking after the cows and you can just sit there under your tree and kind of keep a gentle eye on them, but you don't have to run around with the stick and intervene. So the, the degree of, of intervention and the response is going to depend on the sort of... Um, the sort of thoughts that, we, that are running with us or that we are running with. So there's just one, one last piece that I want to mention, which is the question that often comes up about, you know, what's, what's the difference between mental proliferation and investigation or wise reflection? Because we talk a lot about investigation and uh, and wise reflection, and I think for me the question is: you know, are the hindrances increasing or diminishing through this inquiry? Is this is this investigation helping the mind become more settled and contented, or is it helping it become more agitated? So the Buddha actually talked about wise reflection and unwise reflection. And, and he said that unwise reflection is the sort of thinking that goes, well, how was I in the past? And how will I be in the future? And how am I in the present? Uh, these, all these sort of um, concerns about this, this story of me. And the, that when somebody's lost in that kind of investigation, they don't really know where suffering's arising and where suffering is released. And wise reflection, on the other hand, is, is looking at uh, where suffering is arising in the moment, so looking into the territory of the, the Four Noble Truths. How is suffering arising in this moment and where is release to be found and how can I move in that direction now? And when we really attend to the present like that, it wakes up the, the factors of mindfulness, the awakening factors of mindfulness and curiosity and energy. Which is this question, well, what is this that's happening now? So we're stepping out of being lost in thought into a more holistic type of knowing. One of my teachers, Kitty Saro, he, he says that uh, wise, wise attention, which is called yoniso manasikara in Pali. Uh, manasikara is my, mental activity and yoniso is an interesting word. It's related to the word for womb, yoni. And uh, he, he says it's like we're returning our thoughts to the womb of awareness. We're stepping into a much more holistic ...connected way of knowing that's not lost in mental proliferation. There's a, a, a way that this was described by a French writer who I like. He says, I'm convinced that children always know more than they're able to put into words. Which is a huge difference between them and us adults who in some cases know barely a fraction of whatever we're talking about. (laughs) Maybe it's just that children know everything they know with their whole being, whereas we tend to know it only in our head. So to trust that there's a way of knowing stuff with your whole being that doesn't have to involve um, a lot of mental proliferation... So, just in conclusion, I just wanted to to speak about this because of really recognizing how much time um, I spend as a practitioner lost in thought, you know, and. There's a, there's a reflection that uh, monastics do, which is one of uh, subjects for frequent recollection. I might talk about them one night, but one of them is this sentence. It says, the days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? Yeah. And uh, time spent lost in thought is not often very productive. And We all find ourselves doing it so... You know, we can be kind to that, but just let's not waste too much. Yeah. So we've been, we've been using in relation to the body this, this phrase, atikayo, there is a body. Yeah. With our thinking, can we do, can we also have this practice of noticing there is thinking. Yeah. There are thoughts being known. So Joseph Goldstein says, I've heard him say that in meditation, no thought is worth thinking. This is an interesting one to contemplate. Yeah. So I'm not saying that no thought should happen, thoughts keep happening, but we need to be really careful what we pick up. And it, it's true that sometimes we do need to think there are thoughts that we need to pick up. And, you know, sometimes... Uh, creative thinking can be beautiful creative and useful but it's also interesting to to notice how a lot of uh, creativity comes best from actually from a quiet mind so when we find ourselves thinking which will happen you know let's think like the buddha and Asking the questions, okay, is this, is this a useful and a helpful thought or not? And what's the mind state that's being cultivated with this thinking? And if we find that it's not a helpful line of thinking, you know, there are these ways that we might consider disentangling ourselves. So just to, to, to recap these five ways is that we can play a different tune, change the track... We can reflect on the results of our thinking. We can withdraw our attention from the thought. And we can, we can see about calming the mind's activity, yeah. stopping the internal activity that's generating the thought. And if all that fails, then we just grit our teeth and refuse to let it run the show. And the Buddha said that if we master these five methods of relating to our thoughts, then we'd be able to think whatever thoughts we want to think and not think any thought that we don't want to think. So this is a, a big ask. Yeah, because he goes on to say a person who's accomplished that would be an Arahant. They'd be fully enlightened but we can begin to have more choice over what thoughts we pick up and what thoughts we run with. So that's what I'd like to offer this evening. and Let's just sit quietly together for a moment or two.